Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hi, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast. Uh, today, my guest is from a company called Outlier Canada, and uh, the guest name is Amber Scott. She's a founder, and we're going to be talking about um, you know, blockchain-related issues uh, and AML, anti-money laundering law in Canada. Amber, how are you doing? Very well, thank you, and uh, thank you for having me on. Yeah, no problem. So would you tell guests you know, what you do at Outlier Canada? Sure. Um, we're we're compliance nerds, so in essence, that means that we help people follow the law in various capacities. Uh, where we tend to specialize in the Canadian context is anti-money laundering, counter-terrorist financing. Uh, we also practice in privacy and some types of regulatory compliance. Um, I should mention we also have practices uh, in the U.S. and the U.K., but those are run by different folks. So. Um, while we are related, uh, a related group of companies, my focus will mainly be on Canada when I get into specific examples. Okay, yeah, that's fine. Do you? Um, so, what kind of companies uh, do you advise, or is it? Uh, I would guess it's rarely individuals, mostly companies, right? Um, it's it's mostly companies. I we have on a couple of occasions been approached by individuals who are sole proprietors. Uh, because most of what we work with is uh, related to finance in some way, shape, or form, so financial technology and things like that, my view is generally that if you've formed a sole proprietorship in in this world, you're taking on a ton of risk personally, um, and you're probably not going to like a lot of what I have to say to you because everything that we do is risk management. Um, so I'm I'm not particularly risk averse, but I think that if you're going to take risks, then you have to manage those risks effectively. So for that reason, um, 100% of who I've dealt with has has been incorporated companies as opposed to individuals. Yeah. So what what kind of companies uh, need your help, whether they know it or not? You know what? Sure. Kind of work are they involved in? Um, generally, anything in the financial sphere um, that gets connected to anti-money laundering and counter-terrorist financing. So we have a whole bunch of different types of reporting entities in Canada, and that can range anywhere from banks and credit unions to money service businesses, so anyone who's doing transfers, uh, to jewelers. So we, we actually do a lot of work in the jewelry industry with gold dealers and folks like that as well. Um, and we work with Bitcoin exchanges with financial technology companies. Uh, most Bitcoin exchanges in the Canadian context uh, aren't actually regulated entities. So just by selling Bitcoin, by exchanging Canadian dollars for Bitcoin or vice versa, that doesn't actually make you an entity that's regulated from an anti-money laundering perspective. But we've hit a really funny situation here where our regulator has said uh, that they're not yet to be regulated. They will be regulated as money service businesses at some point. So we had a law that was passed, but no regulation that would actually bring that into effect as of yet. Um, okay. But the only time that banks will deal with these companies is if they are registered as a money service business, if they have a compliance program in place. So we've gotten into a funny situation where a lot of the exchanges will do some limited U.S. dollar transactions simply so that there's right. the possibility that there could be foreign exchange, which would make them a traditional money service business. It's better to watch out. You said regulation is here. It just hasn't been put into effect yet. So, you know, I mean, let's focus in, by the way, on the cryptocurrency exchanges. Absolutely. Yeah, they're definitely going to need to comply. So what what's involved 
what kind of program is needed, compliance program, and what do they have to do that you know banks do? Sure. So from from an anti money laundering perspective, it's pretty straightforward. There are five major elements that uh, folks need to have in terms of a program. So one of those is designating a compliance officer. There's a lot of confusion around that. So um, a lot of people think that you need to go out and hire someone who's external to your organization, who's very specifically trained. It can be someone internal to your organization. It can be a staff member that you already have, but they have to have the ability to acquire uh, those those hard skills and that knowledge about compliance. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a new hire. Depending on the size of your organization, they might not be all compliance all the time. So they might have another function. If you're a very small startup, they might do operations or accounting or some other function and also compliance. Uh, you need to have policies and procedures. Those have to be documented. So just what things do you have to do under the law? That's your policy. What things are you doing to comply with that? So what's your actual process? Um, those are your procedures. You have to have a risk assessment, and that talks about the risk that your business overall could be used to launder money or finance terrorism, um, and then talk about the things that you're doing to prevent that from happening. So those are those are your controls, your risk mitigation measures. You need to train your staff on all of these things. So anybody that deals with customers or customer transactions needs to understand that, hey, there's this thing called money laundering or and there's this thing called terrorist financing, and it could happen. And here are some things that we might consider to be suspicious. And if you see any of that stuff, um, get in touch with the compliance officer, let them know about it, um, let them decide what next steps are necessary. And uh, there has to be an effectiveness review, which is like an audit, but for compliance. Um, and that's required every two years. It is exactly as much fun as it sounds. Well, what are what are some of the um, transactions? or things that could go on that, um, you know, have to be paid attention to, like dollar amounts, um, sure. number of transactions, the, those kinds of things. So the the big, one of the biggest deals in terms of reporting is large cash transactions. So if someone is giving you more than, you know, well, $10,000 or more in Canada, uh, the U.S. standard is a little bit different. It's more than $10,000, so very similar. Uh, then that becomes a reportable transaction. You need to collect the... Uh, identification for that person. So if you're in person, you would look at a copy of their driver's license or passport, um, get the pertinent details from that document um, and transmit that through an electronic reporting system. Um, if you're non-face-to-face, there are very specific methods that have to be used. So that can be uh, things ranging from a credit check. So if the person has a credit file that's been in existence for more than three years, you could use that or relying on two other independent documents, so from different sources uh, that are in their original format, and having that used as your mechanism of ID, uh, provided that those documents confirm certain pieces of information. It's a little bit more complex when it comes to identification, if you have to identify someone under these laws, than most people think. And this is, I think, one of the most fascinating points of tension, because we have really awesome ways to identify people online. Um, that I think are phenomenal, that I think are actually doing better at mitigating risk than some of the methods that we have to use under the law. Um, For instance, there's a product that's out where you can actually hold up your identification. Um, So it's got a camera. You know, I hold it up to my camera either on my smartphone or or on my laptop. Um, It takes a picture of me holding up my identification. And then there's a comparison that's done. So you know that my face, the dimensions of my face, are going to match the dimensions of the face on that identification. It then pulls the data from different parts of that identification. So my driver's license number, my name, um, the the dates of expiry and things like that to make sure that it's a valid document, that it's not expired. 
Um, it's algorithmically checking to say, is this a driver's license that should exist for the name Amber D. Scott? Um, is this a driver's license number that should exist for the province of Ontario where I live? And so there's all of these different pieces of data that are going in to say, yes, this is the same person holding up that ID and this is a valid ID. So everything about this transaction checks out. Uh, because that's not done face to face, that's not actually an acceptable method if you have to identify someone under these AML rules in Canada, which, which gets a little bit crazy because you look at how phenomenal it is in terms of risk management, but we have these right. very specific, prescriptive, um, sometimes painful methods and methods that I don't think are always great at risk management. Um, so here's a fun one with credit check. So I'd mentioned that earlier. I can use just a credit check if you have a Canadian Credit Bureau history to identify you. And right. that that means that all I have to know is your name, your address, and your date of birth. Um, and if those three pieces of information match a Canadian Credit Bureau, and that Credit Bureau has been in existence for more than three years, um, it checks out. So essentially, for a lot of my friends on Facebook, um, and, and I give people heck about this because I practice in the area of privacy as well, but you see instances where people will have their name and their address and their date of birth that are visible in, in different ways if you, if you right. know where to look. So if I've had an event at my house, you have my address. Um, if someone wished me happy birthday and they said how old I was, uh, now you've got my, you know, my date of birth, my year of birth, and, and you know my name already. And so mm. could you apply for a product as me and essentially have that check out. You could. Right. So how are the, um, <clears throat> in the U S you know, I've, I've been on several exchanges. They'll ask you, they'll have different tiers of verification and one tier is, yeah, you have to take a picture of yourself holding your license for instance, but yeah, and, and you've got slightly different rules um, as far as how you can right. identify someone. But how so will certain is, transactions get down if you're in Canada, if they require you to be in there in person, you know, seems to go completely contrary to uh, even to banking, online banking. Oh, you know, once you set up an account. Yeah. yeah so the, the same rules actually apply in banking as well. So they have to identify you at some point. Um, and once they've identified you, they don't need to keep identifying you for every transaction that you're doing, provided that they're reasonably certain that you're that same person. Um, so if you're logging in with a password or a PIN, or if I'm making a phone call and I'm authenticating myself by providing certain security information, then they're not going to continue to do the same mechanism for ID um, time and time again. But it's also different from country to country in terms of how identification is conducted. Um, and I think this is probably one of the most fascinating challenges in, as, as a compliance nerd, maybe not fascinating for, for real people, so to speak. Um, but but I think it's one of the most fascinating challenges in my world because technology is very instant and global. Um, and regulation, in terms of what you have to do, tends to be very slow and local, meaning that it takes a long time to change. So uh, regulation isn't necessarily going to catch up right away with what we can do and that scope of possibilities. That takes convincing, that takes lobbying, that takes speaking to the decision makers and I don't think um, as, as technology communities and, and in particular in the Bitcoin blockchain community um, that we've necessarily done everything that we could be doing to engage in those ways with those decision makers. Um, we, we definitely are in some contexts. So the, uh, the Blockchain Association of Canada had uh, the first blockchain government forum in Canada just uh, very recently, and that had 
excellent participation from different government stakeholders. Uh, there's the Digital Chamber of Commerce in the U.S. that's doing absolutely incredible work. I, I think that there's a lot of groups that are emerging and starting to, to do this work in great ways and starting to have those conversations with stakeholders. Um, but it's, it's a pain point, and I think it's going to be uh, a pain point for the foreseeable future, but that as, as technologists, as technology advocates, we really have to be out there and having those conversations and explaining the realm of the possible. Um, Why do you think it's going to be um, a difficult thing? Because the nature of cryptocurrency is that they're global and can be transferred pretty quickly? Or where, where do you see the problems coming? Um, I So I think that, that from, and it's not just a cryptocurrency problem. I, I would say for technologies in general, the same issue exists. Um, so one of one of the more common questions that I get about from a technology perspective is that um, Uber didn't necessarily care about the rules or follow all of the rules in the places where it deployed. Uh, why is it different for me? And I think part of the answer for that is that if you're dealing with people's money, they have much less of a sense of humor. Uh, so as soon as you're dealing with something that's a store of value, those are very different regulators and they tend to have a lot more teeth than something like a taxi commission uh, where absolutely you get different fights in different places, but they're not they're not fights with the same fervor and they're not regulators who um, who will do something that's very punitive at the outset to stop your operations in most cases. And I think that's that's a really important differentiator as far as cryptocurrency goes, because you're talking about this transfer of value. Um, and we we tend to have a lot of rules around anything with the transfer of value. But I will say that even as an anti-money laundering nerd, even as someone who specializes in anti-money laundering and counterterrorism, I don't think that money laundering and terrorism are the biggest problems that we have in the digital currency world. Uh, that's, that's not the thing that's, that's really keeping me up at night. I, I'm sure that, you know, much like cash, much like the banks, much like electronic fund transfers, there are risks there. Um, there are risks everywhere. But I don't think that as a, as a community, that's the biggest issue that we have that we should be thinking about. I am much more concerned about, um, about ICOs, about various exchanges that are out there essentially handling people's money um, making promises that don't either have or believe that they have any sort of fiduciary responsibility uh, to the folks that they're serving. And what I mean by that is that if my money is, you know, for instance, if I'm keeping my money in a bank um, and something happens, I'm probably going to be able to recover some of those funds. So there is some degree of insurance for worst case scenarios, probably not all my funds, but I would be able to recover some of my funds. We don't have that for anything in the digital currency world. And I, and I think Mt. Gox was an interesting example of that, but certainly not the, you know, not the only example of that that exists. Um, and I think that with all of the money that's currently being raised with ICOs, we are probably going to see some very interesting issues in the near term in terms of what happens when one of these collapses completely. Um, what happens when you have something that um, that goes the way of the Dow without a Vitalik to the rescue? And so when you when you have an actual loss of millions of dollars of people's money that thought that this was a great investment, 
um, what do you do with that and and what falls out of that um, it it's so hard what do you to think say. is going to happen with ICOs when do you think reg- regulation will come and what's what are some examples of uh, things that you think may happen good or bad um, I would hate to see them be overregulated so I I think part of the issue is that you know, there, there's a lot of things happening in the world of ICOs that, that isn't a share. So in, in that sense, no one's out there saying it's a security. No one's out there saying that uh, you own part of the company and, and here's what's going to happen. So it's hard to really fit it under current securities regulation. It really becomes a little bit more like a crowd sale, you know, where, where someone's funding a movie and maybe I get to go to a premiere you know, if if I'm a contributor. So I, I get to see something that no one else gets to see. Um, but in these cases, we know that even though folks might be saying that, you know, we don't consider this to be a security, a lot of people are treating it like a security. A lot of people are treating it like an investment. And that's a, you know, that's a point of tension in terms of how do you regulate it? How do you deal with it? Knowing how people are behaving, you know, with this thing in the real world. Um, when I think of Ethereum, I am I am always a little bit miffed at uh, the description of Ethereum as being a digital currency, in that I think its mandate is a little bit different from that, um, and that it's yeah, really intended so to be a platform that people can build other really cool stuff on top of. But it's it's a question that we have out there, you know, and and there's there's a meetup happening in Toronto a couple of weeks from now that started being characterized as Ethereum versus Bitcoin, and I think now it's Ethereum and Bitcoin. Um, but but these are actual conversations, uh, and and these are things that no matter what the intention of the creator is, uh, when when someone comes out with one of these tokens, people are treating them like investments. People are trading them the way that they would be trading stocks, and that's right. a question that regulators have to ask: is that if this is how people are using this, um, do we treat it that way? Personally, sure. I would I would like to see something happen. Um, Sort of the way that we've uh, we've seen with the idea that you can have without having a full IPO, uh, you can have um, a crowd sale related to the shares in in a startup or a higher risk company. Um, things that previously were only offered to qualified investors uh, that met certain conditions, so they had to have um, you know a certain amount of funds or assets. Um, they had to be relatively sophisticated investors. So now we've opened it up so that folks can generally, in, you know, invest in this. But there are some guardrails around that. So the idea that you couldn't, um, for instance, invest more than 10% of, I can't remember if it's either your assets or your income um, in any of no. these high-risk vehicles. And I, and I think that's that's a great idea. Just something to put some guardrails. Or an accredited in investor or any investor? Uh, well, I, so I think accredited investors are are a little bit different, but but for any in, investor that's out there, I mean, any anyone can buy Bitcoin, anyone can buy any token. You know, you you go to an exchange, you authenticate yourself. There's there's nothing to stop you from doing that. Um, right. And we we do see it at meetups. We do see it at different places where you know we had a guy come in that that literally had access to his grandparents' post retirement but million dollar retirement fund. That right. said, uh, you know, I want to take this money and I want to invest it in Bitcoin or something. I don't know anything about digital currencies. Uh, what should I do? Does someone here want to sell me Bitcoin? And that, right. that to me, is terrifying. I mean, that, that's, it, it's terrifying that, the, you know, that's, 
that's what that human chose to do. He didn't understand the risk. He didn't really understand what Bitcoin was or even how to buy Bitcoin. And there was a real possibility for that person to get completely hosed. Uh, Fortunately, he came to a good place and people actually, you know, people explained things to him. You know, explained, hey, there is risk involved in this, and and you need to think it through. You you know, you could be buying something that that absolutely will go up ten times, or you could be buying something that will crash to zero, um, and you have no protection in that case. Um, and I think when we talk about the the risk that's associated with things like this, there's really there's nothing to compel us to do the types of things that licensed financial advisors do. I'm not suggesting that I think that people should need to be licensed financial advisors. Um, in order to work at an exchange. But I think maybe some of the consumer protection provisions should sort of kick in. Um, And these are things that already exist. Just if you are selling something, you should have to represent the risk of that accurately. And so, yes, you know, as an individual or as a, as a company, like an exchange, I I think both. Um, I, so I, I think absolutely both. I think it, it kicks in in a different way as a company, um, but even even as an individual, if what I decide that I'm going to do is, buy, you know, buy um, various coins from exchanges and sell them to my friends and colleagues and people that I know, I should still have to represent those accurately um, and say that there's a possibility that that this could be worth something or there's a possibility that it could be worth nothing. Um, right. And I, I don't know that we're always characterizing that accurately. Um, and I, and there are a lot of things out there that are are flat out scams. I, I got a message on LinkedIn last week from someone that said, hey, come and come and work with us on this project. And when I looked at it, I went, oh, that's purely a Ponzi scheme. Um, what you're saying is people should, you know, people should send you Bitcoin and here's the way it's going to work. But they they essentially described a Ponzi scheme without saying the word Ponzi scheme. Right. Um, yeah, we, and- we haven't talked much about uh, KYC, know your customer. Is that present in Canada? I know it, it kind of goes hand in hand with, you know, anti-money laundering, AML. I mean, it sounds like that's the process by which, you know, an institution gets to know a customer so they can do higher dollar transactions. Uh, yes, very much so. And uh, and it's different based on on what your risk level is assessed to be. So if um, if you're considered to be higher risk, then there's something that applies that's called enhanced due diligence. That's not really well defined in the Canadian context. So what it's saying is that if you're an exchange uh, or if you're a money service business, uh, rather, and you think that. I'm high risk, you're going to do something different than you would do for every other customer. um, And it's supposed to mitigate the reason that I'm high risk. So if you think that I'm high risk because I operate a consulting firm and I have access to the funds associated with that consulting firm and I I could be running things through those accounts that I shouldn't be, um, then you would do something to mitigate that specific risk. So you might ask me for more information about the transactions uh, that I'm doing. You might ask me if it's transactions related to Outlier and Outlier's business. You might ask me to see copies of those invoices. Uh, so we do take payments in, in Bitcoin uh, and in Ether and, uh, and in Litecoin. So uh, you might ask to see the invoice that I sent to my customer to know that is really a customer transaction and that is really what I'm receiving. Um, that, that is really the nature of my business and those type of things. Um, as an individual, you might uh, you might do certain things. So if you thought that I wasn't being providing the right information or that I was being disingenuous, uh, you might just not even necessarily contact me for additional KYC information, but you might look at the publicly available information. So you might look at my webpage, you might look at my profiles on different social networks like Facebook and LinkedIn, 
um, and different things that we're publicly facing to say, uh, do, do the transactions that Amber is doing make sense? Is she Does it seem like she really is who she says she is? Um, is there something else that could be at play here? And all of those things have to be documented. That's that's really the crux in, in terms of KYC is not just that you're doing it, because what we hear in examinations, and, and this is true the world over in every industry, uh, we hear in examinations where people are sitting down with a regulator um, and, and they're essentially being tested and judged. People will say to the regulator, but we know our customers. We know them. Right. We know who they are. Uh, and that's not what the regulator is looking for ever anywhere as an answer. They're looking for you to prove it. They're looking for you to show them, yes, we know that Amber um, is the founder of this consulting firm. You know, here's, here's her LinkedIn page. Here's all of the information that we've gathered on that. This makes sense. We know that the transactions that Amber is doing in this account really are related to invoices to her clients. Here's the invoices that we've collected. Um, and maybe you only do that the first few times where you say, okay, you know what? This makes sense. You're able to produce an invoice. You know, we don't need to do this anymore unless there's a transaction right. over a certain threshold or your frequency changes, something like that. But you're showing that the measures that you're taking make sense. And it's it's not enough to do them. You have to be able to prove that you've done it. Um, and having having a note that says, here's what we did, here's the result, that's enough. I mean, you don't need blood samples, you don't you don't need, you know, photos of someone's firstborn, but you right. need something that describes, you know, what was done by whom and when. And if you can and cover that up, that you're this in a is good what place. you do in these situations, right? I'd, absolutely. Um, but a policy isn't going to cover every possible situation. So there, you can also have really weak policies in that regard. Um, so for instance, if I had just said, well, if everybody who I think is high risk, I'm going to do some additional KYC on them um, by just Googling them, that doesn't really mitigate the risk um, in certain situations. So that's good if you think that maybe I'm not who I say I am, or maybe the business that I'm doing is different than what I'm doing. But if we're talking about business that's being done through Outlier, and it doesn't really make sense for a consulting firm, asking for those invoices is much stronger than simply doing a Google search. So that's, that's part of it is that what you're doing should actually mitigate risk. Um, it's, you know, there are certain things that are prescriptive. Right. So when it talks about, you know, I have to collect your name and address and date of birth. Um, I have to identify you in a certain way. I have to find out who the beneficial owners of a company are. I have to confirm those beneficial owners. So those are very prescriptive things. But when it comes down to why is someone risky, the things that I'm doing shouldn't just be a checklist. They should be things that are actually mitigating that risk. Um, that's, that's what makes something a good control. And sometimes that requires a little bit of creative thinking. Um, I mean, asking for a second piece of ID, that's a great way to mitigate risk. If I think the first ID that you gave me is fake, um, it's, it's a bad way to mitigate risk. If I think that the thing that you're doing is, you know, um, your job is something other than working for a media company, uh, that second piece of ID really isn't going to give me any more useful information than I had based on the first piece of ID. Makes sense. And so, so last last couple of questions. I'd like to, to hear from you as a consumer. I run into situations where, again, an institution or company asks me for invoices or asks me for this or that, and I'm like, "What the, what the hell? Why, why do you need this? Like, you know?" So, how can we give consumers, regular folks that use banks that may use exchanges, etc., what are uh, transactions or behavior they should either stay away from, or if they do it. <laughs> expect that they have to 
fall under higher level of scrutiny. You know, frequency, amounts, other types of things. What can you tell people to to do or not do or avoid or expect more compliance that's to be thrown at them? I, I so I mean I would say for, first of all, um, don't necessarily try to worry about avoiding these transactions. Um, there's actually a concept called structuring. Um, and what structuring means is that I am literally doing transactions in a way that I want to avoid any type of scrutiny or regulation. Um, so, for instance, if I know that there are some additional reports or things that have to be done uh, because my transactions, it, you know, if I'm doing cash and it's over $10,000, that gets reported. And I deliberately start doing transactions that are all just under $10,000 and I start doing those closer together, that's actually um, in some places flat out illegal um, and definitely in most places something that's going to show up as being at the very least reportable. So meaning that mm -hmm. if, you're, if you're doing something to avoid reporting, um, most of the time your financial entities have a job to, or a, a mandate to try to detect that um, and report right. it as being potentially suspicious in that case. Um, so do what you need to do. <laughs> In you know that's my first piece of advice for consumers. In your regular course of business, just do the stuff that you need to do. Um, ex you know, expect that sometimes there's going to be a little bit of a headache around it. So you might have to present additional um, identification. You might have to um, present uh, you know additional information or proof. Um, your financial institutions, your your exchanges, they're not asking for that for fun. Um, they're asking for that because they have a regulatory burden as well. And they have to prove that they've done these things. Um, right. And I'm not asking you to help people evade this stuff, but I'm asking you to, people may not even be aware. Like, you know, again, in my life, I've had it happen to me X number of times. And I was just mm -hmm. annoyed by it. I, I, I took it as like a personal affront. I'm sure I shouldn't have. Oh, I, I work in compliance and I'm still annoyed and, by it. <laughs> yeah. Well, good. Uh, I, so I just want to know. Uh, yeah, what are situations in which people will face this stuff where they may, you know, it's just so they have an understanding. Like you said, institutions don't do this for fun. That's great. That helps my understanding. But what are some of the behaviors? So structuring, yeah, what yeah, else? I mean, structure, structuring is one. So so changes um, changes to the, the volume of your transactions, the velocity of your transactions, the amounts of your transactions, um, things that wouldn't make sense if you look at um, the information that you've provided. Uh, so, for instance, um, if the inf uh, the institution has collected as part of their KYC process what your job is, uh, if my job is as a cashier at a fast food restaurant, it probably doesn't make a lot of sense if I start doing transactions in the hundreds and thousands of dollars. Um, so, so something has changed, you know, in in terms of my occupation. Um, transactions that that are done or seem to be done, um, you know, on behalf of someone else. So especially transactions that you don't know a lot about or can't explain. And this is a place where I think it gets really funny when they do follow up, right? So, so I mean, in, in money laundering, there, there are often people who are either knowingly or unknowingly moving money for a criminal or a criminal organization. Mule. Yeah, mule, yeah, yeah. Mule, smurfs, you know, they, so um, the, the term smurfs actually came from... Um, uh, blue-haired old ladies who used to help uh, these criminal organizations move money because if if you're a senior and you're on a fixed income and somebody says, hey, you know, uh, here's what I need you to do. I just need you to come by my shop every day um, and then pick up this money for me and just go take it and deposit it in these three banks. So I'm just going to give you three envelopes and you just bring them to three banks and put them in your account. 
And then you just transfer them all to me at the end. We'll take care of everything for you. Don't worry. Um, and we'll pay you to do this every day. That's fabulous. This is a fabulous part-time job. I get to go for a little walk. These boys are so nice to me. I just take the money from the bakery to the bank and and I do this thing for them. And, and you know, it's super helpful. Um, so, so this was happening. And and you still see it. Um, you know, you see ads in in different publications, in different places. You see email campaigns where they'll say, oh, you know, here's all all you have to do is use your Canadian bank account to receive this money. And then you transfer it to us and you keep a percentage. Um, oh, okay. Sometimes those are absolute the scams. They want scam. your bank yeah. account number. No, so some, so that, that exists too. Um, but there are actually situations where people are just, you know, they're moving money from place to place to make it harder to detect. Um, uh. You can certainly, you know, you could see this, um, you know, if somebody said, hey, you have a verified account with an exchange. Um, can you you know, can you start doing these transactions for me? Can you get these funds out and then, you know, send me the funds right. or, you know, or sell this digital currency? Um, so, I, so I'm going to give you my, my Bitcoin um, because, uh, you know, now the guns that I'm selling overseas, people are paying me for them in Bitcoin. So if you could, mm-hmm. uh, if you could just take my Bitcoin and, uh, you know, and, and sell it on the exchange and then transfer me the money and I'll, I'll let you keep a percentage and that stops the exchange from ever doing KYC on me, that type of thing is problematic. But in that situation, A, you might not know that I'm selling guns. Um, you know, I I might just give you a song and dance about how I just moved here recently and I don't have great ID and, you know, yada, yada, yada. These exchanges are really inconvenient. I'm super libertarian. I don't want to give them my ID. Whatever the situation is, um, right. you know, other than my telling you, hey, what, I, you know, what I'm really doing is running guns or trafficking humans or whatever. Um, can you do these transactions for me? I'd super appreciate it. Um, and, and, you know, and then you're getting yourself into trouble. But in that case, if the exchange asked you, hey, what's this transaction about? You know, what what is this for? This is different from what you normally do. You wouldn't be able to explain it. Um, and, and that's always something that's a, that's a little bit off when you look at transactions. Either you can't explain it. So you're, oh, oh, I don't really know. I sort of did. You know, my girlfriend asked me to do this and I don't really know much about it. Um, oh, you know, let me get some more some more information or like, oh, never mind. Th- those are not good <laughs> from from a suspicion perspective. Um, and having a whole gotcha. big prepared song and dance isn't good either. You know, so so if I said, oh, you know, if your exchange just calls you up and says, oh, th- you know, this transaction's a little bit different from what you normally do. We just want to make sure everything's cool from a security perspective. And you say, oh, no, I have six invoices related to that. Let me send them to you right now. And you have a big, long prepared statement of several paragraphs that describes what these are. Right. E- equally, like, just just give folks what, the, what they're asking for. Um, I don't think you need more or less than that. Okay. And, and, know, okay. and know that you're right to be sort of annoyed. Um, so I think Andreas Antonopoulos talks about this a lot, where he makes a, a really good point, where he talks about these places being very custodial of a lot of data um, and that being a risk from a security perspective. And, and I think that's absolutely true, um, which is where I get to give them what they ask for, but no more than that, because that's what they feel like they have to ask for in that situation. Um, but But you don't necessarily need to um, to give more than that. And it's, it's not necessarily helpful if you do. Okay. Makes sense. So yeah, last question. Um, how can listeners that, um, either have startups or existing companies and, you know, need to be aware of this, this compliance, um, requirements, get in touch with you and get help and guidance and, uh, you know, consulting. What's the best way to contact the company? Oh, absolutely. Um, so our, our website is outliercanada.com. Um, 
there's if you want one of the international companies so either either us or uk uh, outlierinternational.com will actually also um, show you a world map and you can find uh, the outlier compliance geek nearest you we're happy to help all right excellent well Daniel amber thank you for coming and uh you know the happiest person in the compliance world i've ever talked to <laughs> thank you um we uh, compliance is something that we have to do and uh you know, I can't, uh, when the laws suck, I can't make them suck any less, but I can at least uh, try to make following them a little bit less sucky. You've been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, both to review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.